morning, everyone. So yesterday, around uh, 5 o'clock, uh, we turned on the news and we found out about what happened in Buffalo. I'm not exactly sure at what point in the day it happened yesterday. Um, the sound wasn't on or the volume wasn't on. I, was, I think I was holding River at the time and uh, the kids were running around. Just saw the ticker or the, 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 the headline or whatever that was printed and it was shooting in Buffalo, something about a manifesto and that 10 people were, were shot. And you know, we, we carried on with our conversation and whatever was going on. And, and you know, in some ways it w it's, it's kind of telling that something like that can happen and it seems like, yeah, it's another one. Like, there's nothing particularly shocking about it at this point. There's nothing really surprising. Um, but even though many people in the world and most of America are, is used to hearing tragedies like this, there are re real people who are affected, right? Someone has lost a mother or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister and their lives are never going to be the same again. And I think compounding that, if you've ever experienced any kind of racism before, if you've ever been targeted in any way, whether through insults or slurs, and come to find out that there's a manifesto, and there was even some, some racial slur, I think, printed on the gun that was used, it hits home too, right? Because you know what it's like to be on the other end of that, and to be hated and want to be harmed and... and wounded, even though you've not done anything at all, and it's just the color of your skin or your ethnicity. So um, times like that, what can we do? We're about 10 hours away from Buffalo, but it could still hit home, and in some ways it should. Like, I don't want to get used to headlines like that, and that's what happened yesterday, right? I saw it, and I'm like, oh yeah, of course, another mass shooting in America. I got used, we shouldn't be used to that. And I don't mean just on a policy level. I mean, as a human level, we should be able to grieve with those who grieve and grieve sin and injustice in this world. We ought to pray for those who are hurting, for those who are grieving. We ought to ask God to come and make it all new. And let us be a part. This little multicultural, if racism is, this it appears as so that this was racially motivated. If that's the case, may we, as a small expression of a multicultural family, be a prophetic witness in our world that Jesus offers something better. So right now we could pray. We could pray for justice. We could pray for mercy for the family and even for the, to, I, don't, I'm not, I don't mean this pejoratively, I mean matter-of-factly, this fool who has done this. Pray for mercy for his soul. We could pray that our church, by God's grace, could be a little light that shines in, in the midst of darkness. Can we pray right now? Lord, there are no trite or pithy sayings that could be like a bandage on this wound. No. Nothing else but the very death of the Son of God and resurrection will be enough to to draw out the poison that is really in this world. So God, we don't have any unrealistic expectations or about what it would really require. It's your intervention, God. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Make it all new. 
we pray that it wouldn't just be in your return, Lord, but even now in your church, churches in Buffalo, Christians in Buffalo, Lord, can be a message of hope to those who are grieving and hurting. We pray for justice for the crime that was committed. And we, yes, we do also pray for mercy for the man who did this, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that somehow, Lord, in the midst of this, that you would bring, as you always do, as you did in the death of Jesus, you would bring about your glory and redemption and restoration. God, I, I don't know how we could, we could see it in this life, in, their, in, in this time, and this side of eternity in their lives, but we know it's possible. We know you do it. So we pray that you would. Would you bring strength and support? And for those of us here who are hurting too, Lord, would you remind us of the hope that we have in you? We pray that churches like ours could be a prophetic witness that it is possible for people of different colors and ethnicities and background to come together and love one another because you are just that good and you unite us, Lord. Lord, help us, Lord, in this time as people are grieving, Lord, to truly be a unique voice in the midst of confusion and be a light in the midst of darkness. Help us to do this, Lord, by your grace and your strength. In Christ's name. Amen. So in 2012, in light of injustice, and in 2012, if you were online at all, if you were on social media, on Twitter, you would have likely have heard about the t Coney 2012 campaign. Anyone remember that? Coney 2012 campaign? Invisible Children came out with a short documentary called Coney 2012, and the purpose was to expose Ugandan militant leader Joseph Coney, who was committing atrocities in Uganda. There were people who were aware of it, there were NGOs that were involved, but this was a way to get the world to be aware of what Joseph Coney was doing, bring him to justice, and their desire was to do it by the end of 2012. The film went viral. It was the most like YouTube video, I think for that year at the time. Time Magazine in 2013 called it the most viral video ever. Jyothi and I watched it. We were in Houston at the time. We were compelled by this little documentary. We donated. We got a box of stickers and pins, and we liked it on social media. We were compelled by it. A lot of people were compelled by it. Um, and these days, that's the extent of our involvement in social things. Like, I talked about Buffalo right now. But most people, when it comes to hearing about so, uh, being enraged by something and being a part of a movement, the shelf life, unless you're really down with the cause, unless you really identify with the suffering, for the most part, we experience that we'll, we'll, the world will move on. And it's, it's tragic that it happens in that way. For a lot of us, when we hear about something on the news, we'll like it, we might share it, but that's the extent of our involvement. It's easy to feel like you're a part of a movement or that you really care, or you could believe that you fully embrace something when really you've superficially liked it. We've been in this series this whole time um, for the past few weeks on the good life, and every week we looked at a part of Jesus' sermon in the Gospel of Luke, and it's a sermon on the plain. And we call it the good life because of the way he opens the sermon. He talks about blessedness and what real blessedness is, what the real good life is. And now the question is this. After all of that and we're concluding this series, the question is, how do we know if we've truly embraced it? 
How do we know if we've embraced Jesus' message, if we've embraced the good life, or if we've just superficially liked it? Well, he tells us, shows us two things. The first, the first way to know if you've truly embraced the good life is that you will obey Jesus from the heart. You obey Jesus from the heart. So this is the last section of his sermon, and as I said before, he taught them about blessedness. And what did he say? He said the good life, the life of blessedness, is a life of dependence upon God. It's experiencing God as you depend upon him. And that's why he mentioned the poor in spirit, or the poor, and those who mourn, those who hunger, those who are persecuted. These are people in positions of vulnerability, of neediness. And why are they blessed? Because they experience comfort. They experience the provision of God's kingdom. They experience, they experience the righteousness and satisfaction from God as they hunger, right? They're people who are in a position of dependence and experience God's power in the midst of that. That's what the good life is. He taught them that the good life is a life of radical love, where people are willing to love their enemies. After he talks about people who persecute you and revile you and insult you and exclude you, he says, rejoice in that day. And then he, don't hate them. Don't lord over, uh, don't, don't, don't gloat over them. Love them more than your pride and possessions. So that if they slap you on the cheek and insult you, turn the other cheek and show that you value them more than you value your pride. If they ask you for your coat, give them your shirt too to show them that you value them more than you value your stuff. It's like valuing the man who committed whatever it is that he did yesterday, who killed people yesterday. Are we able to, to show that kind of compassion and yet at the same time ask for justice? How do we live like that? The life of his kingdom is a life of radical love even for our enemies. He taught them to be a people of truth and grace, to not just look at people and correct them, seeing the speck that's in their eye, but also to see the log that is in our own eye. But go and correct them, yes. Speak the truth, but speak it as those who know that they need grace as well. And now, after expounding on all of these things on his message, he says, this is what the good life of the kingdom is like. And how do you know you've embraced it? He says, well, you need to obey what he said. In pursuing blessedness as Jesus defines, loving your enemies, even when it's difficult, and embracing a life of truth and grace. But it's not just any kind of obedience. It's obedience from the heart. I'm going to read 43 through 46 again. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's an example of, I don't know what that was. Um, that's an example of someone who has experienced, uh, received Jesus superficially. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? A couple of months ago, we were getting groceries, and we, we stumbled upon a modern miracle. We got grapes. We didn't look at the package. We saw grapes, and we just grabbed grapes. But when we got home, we were surprised that the grapes tasted like cotton candy. 
And anyone ever had cotton candy grapes before? It's incredible. <laughs> like, what on earth did, what, like, I, I ate it. I was like, I didn't realize what I was eating. And then after at some point, it's like, I, is this even a grape? And I looked at the package, and it said cotton candy grapes, right? You're surprised by it. How on earth did they do it? This is from Wikipedia, all right? A fruit geneticist named David Kane hand-pollinated to cross-pollinate millions of grapes to combine sweet Conquered grapes with common grapes to make them firmer. Pollen from male grapes, flower, grape flowers, were extracted and brushed onto female clusters of the target plant. Over 12 years, and 100,000 plants were created to grow in test tubes before these grapes, before the cotton candy variety of grape was developed. That was not my theory. It was somehow a piece of cotton candy fell into the ground at the same time of a grape, and somehow there was some cotton candy grape tree. Right? Or no, we, we know it's genetically modified or something, right? I'm waiting for the bacon-flavored one to come out. <laughs> that would be great. Um, you know, asking, you know, if you've ever had a ca cotton candy grape, and you're like, what on earth is this? Right? It's a legitimate question. How on earth do they produce this? It's because you know that the fruit that you enjoy is determined by the seed. And when you're asking, what is it that I'm eating? Like, what is the source of this? It's because you intuitively know that whatever is a fruit, wherever you taste the fruit, it reveals something about its seed. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. No good tree bears bad fruit. I mean, it's, it's more hyperbolic. It's, yes, of course, there could be a bad apple on a tree, right? Or a bad fruit on a tree, right? But it's essentially saying that no bad tree also bears good fruit. You don't get figs from, from thorn bushes. You don't get grapes from briars. The seed determines the fruit. The heart determines the actions. And so if you want to change actions, you've got to change the heart, you got to get to the source, and there are people who embrace a good life, but if they're truly going to embrace what Jesus has to say, his word's got to get down to their heart. It's, they've got to obey him, but that obedience has to spring from the heart. We know what it's like to obey from the will. We've all done it, versus obeying from the heart. Like, think back to when your parents asked you to do something, like clean your room, do your chores, Right? You know what it's like to stomp your feet and, and, and pout and do it. And what are you doing? You're obeying, but how are you doing it? You're not doing it from the heart. You're doing it from the will. And you're even doing it defiantly. Like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to let you know that I don't like it. Like, it's possible to obey from pure determination or even spite. But that's different from obeying from the heart. And that's different than what Jesus is talking about here. Or maybe you've gotten into an argument before and you're at a stalemate and you're not seeing each other's side and... Essentially, you, you, after realizing that you're not going to come to an agreement, the other person demands an apology, and you apologize, but it's not from the heart. It sounds more like this. All right, fine, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you feel that way. You're apologizing for their feelings, right, but not for what you did. Sorry, it's not what I meant, and you, that you can't see that what, what I meant, or I'm sorry, but whatever it is. But you know what it's like to apologize from the will and not from the heart. If you have a therapist or a counselor, which, you know, most, most of us in New York City do, like we also understand the relationship between the heart and behavior and actions. That's why in going there for some kind of behavior or something that's on the surface, they begin to ask you questions to get to what? The heart? Or family of origin questions? 
what your relationship was like with your parents, your father or your mother. Like, what is it that triggered you? What is it that's leading to this behavior? What are they doing? They're trying to get to the heart, and it's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Like, if you, you see the fruits, you see what's on the surface, you see what's on the ex- external, but if you want to, to change the behavior and address that, you got to get to the seed. And it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's out, of, it's out of the overflow of that seed that you get a certain kind of fruit. Tim Keller has a great tool that helps us determine whether we are obedient from the will, which is really religion, if that's how you relate to God, you obey out of the will, or whether you're changed by the gospel. That is, the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed your heart, and therefore, the way we obey God. It's got this great tool, and I want you to ask yourself, which characterizes your approach to Jesus and what he has said in this sermon on the plane? Here's a list, all right? Is this how you approach God? I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I obey, therefore God will accept me. Or, I'm accepted by him completely, therefore I obey. My motivation most of the time in obeying God is fear and insecurity. I'm going to lose something if I don't. Or my motivation is grateful joy because what he has given me, I can never lose. I obey to get things from God. He's got to bless me. Like I know something important's coming up, and I want to make sure that I'm doing everything right so it doesn't jeopardize what I really want. I'm obeying God. I'm being righteous. I'm doing the right things. It's out of the will, but it's so that I can get something from God. Or I am obey God to enjoy him because I love him. I trust him, and I want to be like him. When things go wrong, I'm angry at God or I'm angry at myself because I believe good people deserve a comfortable life. I'm mad at God if I think I'm good and he hasn't given me a comfortable life. Or I'm mad at myself because I'm not good enough to earn a comfortable life from God. Those who are changed by the gospel, when things go wrong, I struggle. Yes, I struggle. But I know that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love in the midst of my trial. Some of you may realize that you haven't embraced a good life or you haven't obeyed because our hearts haven't been melted by the gospel. So maybe you're just like, I don't even obey. And it's because Jesus hasn't compelled you. Others may realize you have obeyed, but this whole time it's been blood, sweat, and tears. And sometimes that's required, right? It's not always going to feel amazing, but you realize the majority of your interaction with God and your approach to God's word and what Jesus commands is this is a struggle, And I'm doing this purely out of determination, purely out of the will. It's like taking medicine. I don't want to do it. And it's not coming from the heart. So how do you know whether that's you? How do you know if if you've been obeying God purely out of the will and not from the heart? Well, Jesus lets us know in the very next point. So not only, how do we know we've embraced the good life? Not only do we obey Jesus, Jesus' words but we, from the heart, but we also be, obey Jesus amid suffering. So we have to obey Jesus from the heart, but also obey Jesus amid suffering. I'm going to read verse 45 again. 
the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And now notice what the mouth might speak, though, just in case. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So it's a person who's got the right vocabulary. They say the right things. But then Jesus makes his point again. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, so that we would not be fooled. He says, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke out against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So you can try to obey Jesus purely from the will, but what exposes that when it's from the will and you've been approaching it through religion, as Tim Keller had said there, is suffering. Suffering and testing. Jesus says what really reveals whether or not you've embraced a good life is if you obey him amid suffering. There are people who superficially accept and say, Lord, Lord, and they continue to say, Lord, Lord, and they do the right things, but the words have not gone beneath the surface. They haven't gone down to the seed level. Does that make sense? Like it hasn't been from the seed and out of the overflow of that seed they obey. No, the, the, the storm reveals that when it comes, the rain pours and the wind blows, that it was nothing more than a house of cards. They stop obeying God because they've lost whatever it is that they were really after. What they really loved. What really compelled them. But Jesus wants us to be like the wise builder. To let his words go down beneath the surface, beyond the superficial. And for us to really receive him and accept him at a seed level. At a heart level. And it's like digging in the ground. And you're building your life. And you're staking your life. Your entire life upon his word saying, this is true, and I'm going to stake my life on it. My motivations, my desires, my ambitions, my goals, my hopes, so that even if suffering washes everything else away, I'm going to continue to obey you and trust you because I've staked my life upon your words. They still obey amid suffering. They let his words go beneath the surface, beneath the superficial level of acceptance. And the rain pours and the wind blows and they still obey and cling to his words in the midst of suffering. Someone recently asked me, well, I had asked the question, how do you know that when you're reading something that you've truly learned it? And then they asked me the question, how do I know? And uh, it's easy for me to do something like, like this. Or if you're in any kind of content creation or knowledge work of any kind, there's a tendency to think that I've learned it if I've taught it. So I've, I've learned what it, this means because I've said it or I've tweeted it. Like God showed me something in devotions and I shared it with someone else. I put it on Instagram. Now I must really know it. But they asked me, like, how do I know? And honestly, I know when I've truly learned something when it's still true for me in the midst of loss and suffering. Like, do I really believe that God is in this work? even when it seems like we're in the midst of instability and like a lot of uncertainty, do I still believe when it looks like whatever it is that I'm hoping for is going to be lost? What is it for you? 
right? Prior to the storm, both appear to have the same kind of acceptance of Jesus. You're walking around, and you're noticing there are two nice homes that are built. And what exposes what their real foundation is is suffering, right? Suffering exposes the foundation of your life. It exposes what you've built your life on, what, you've hoped, what your hopes are, are, are in, what you've staked your life in. If it's career, if it's relationships, if it's wealth, if it's health, if it's prestige, if it's fame, if it's comfort, and it's not Jesus, the loss of those things will expose that Jesus was never what you've staked your life upon. But if Jesus and his promise and his character is, what he has done is the foundation of your life, then your faith and obedience is unchanged when you suffer because you have staked your life upon the unchanging character and promise of God. So how do we do it then? Like, let's say you're here and you're like, I realize, wow, I, it's like God's word has slapped you in the face. And you're like, oh, I'm awake now and I realize I haven't staked my life on him. Like the rain does pour and the wind does blow and I realize that my, my faith has been a, a, a house of cards. Like how do I now, therefore, embrace the good life? How do I stake my life upon Jesus and his words and still obey amid suffering? Here's the thing, especially if, you're, if you love to be in control and you love to have steps on what you can do next, you're not going to like this. The first thing is you're going to have to find Jesus trustworthy. Like the only way that you'll stake your life on him is he's compelling to you. And his promises are more compelling to you than the promises of upward mobility in your career, the promise of whatever relationship you think would satisfy you. His promises are greater than whatever promise of health and prestige and stability. Like, he's got to be more compelling for you, for you to be able to dig your l down into your life and say, I'm going to stake my hope in this. That even if I lose the things that I think are important and that would be a blessing to me, that Jesus is enough. You'll never stake your life on Jesus and his words unless he becomes compelling. And why is that frustrating for those who want to accept? Because... Like, you can't control what's beautiful, right? Like, have you ever enjoyed something and, like, someone else experienced it too and you're like, you don't like it? Like, someone recently said they don't like Levain Bakery cookies. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, how do I give them taste buds to enjoy that? Like, how do I correct them to enjoy, like, a New, a New York slice of pizza, right? You, how do you do that? God's got to do it. And for the control freak who wants to know what to do next, what do you do? In that situation, you've got to stake your life on Jesus. You've, he's got to be compelling to you. And that means you come to him and say, what do you do? You say, Lord, I don't know if I find you more compelling than these other promises. But I want to change me. Then you open your life to his rule. He's a king. He's got a kingdom. A good life is a life of his kingdom. So what does that mean to embrace his kingdom? It's you're saying, rule me. Rule my life. Like, reign over every area of my life. Leave and spare nothing, Lord. And change me. And when he does, realize you're changed by faith. Sometimes we think we're saved by grace and faith, but we're changed by our own efforts. It's not true. Your effort is, invo is involved. It will be, sure. But we are saved by grace through faith, and we're also changed by faith. Like, the only way that I could overcome certain things in my life is when I go to God and I say, this is your promise. You've said you're going to make me like Jesus. From the very beginning, you'd conform me into the image of your son, Jesus. It is your promise to make me like him. So, Lord, I'm believing by faith that your promise is true and you will do it. 
he also changes us by grace through faith. And we open our lives to his rule so that we will be able to obey him as he changes our hearts. So we have to see him as trustworthy. We've got to open his life to our rule. And we also have to commit ourselves to a community that's going to call us to remember, treasure, and trust his words. So that when you veer off and you start living your best life and whatever it is that you're pursuing, that there is a community there that's going to call you and remind you, no, remember the words of Jesus, because you'll forget on your own. Treasure these words because it seems like right now you're treasuring something else. You need a community to remind you of that. Trust in Jesus. Stake your life on his words again because I notice that you're wanting to stake your foundation of your life on something else. You need, a, you need people around you who love you enough to tell you that. That he's the only foundation in your life that will die for you. Your career, family, will not die for you. It won't. Your ministry will never die for you. Your relationships and your ambitions and your dreams one day will all be washed away either by death or the sufferings of this life. But even on this day, Jesus, and even on that day, when we, he calls us, Jesus and his words will remain. He died to give us life. The life that he defines as good. It's the life of his kingdom. And it's life that he offers us today. So what can we do? With humility, we can come before him with open hands, empty hands, and say, Lord, help us to receive your kingdom, your rule, and your reign, the good life, with all of our hearts. Let's pray. I know earlier that I said God's word slaps us awake. It's probably not a, a, a healthy metaphor for what he really does. What does he do? He woos and draws. He woos and draws us with the life of his son. With the open hands of his son. Nail-pierced hands. A thorn-pierced brow. He invites us to come because he's gentle and he's lowly. And that's all we have to do. And trust in him. In the past few weeks, if you've struggled to experience a good life or to, and even in this time that we've had together, you realize you've just superficially liked it but haven't embraced it and suffering in your life has exposed it, this is a time for us to repent of the foundations that we've been building upon. And this is an opportunity for us to stake our lives again on Jesus and his words and cling to him and obey him from the heart, even amid suffering. 